<laughs> uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. And uh, my name is Brandon, the pastor, and and we're in uh, we're in Daniel, and it's uh, it's we're in the like the the kind of the the whoa wait a minute section where you read it and you're like I need someone to help guide me with this thing because I don't know what I'm looking at and and it's prophecies and it's visions and dreams and it's apocalyptic and and uh, and so we're going to be back in it this morning um, this last week though was uh, just a quick highlight was our summer family experience and uh, it it had been. It had been really two years since, I mean, we didn't do it last year because of pandemic and we kind of had a modified outdoor night thing, but we did the full thing. And, and, and there were, I think, right around 300 people who registered and were here and we're here every night of the week. It's an event and, um, and it was a blast. And there was a ton of volunteers. I think I, 70 plus people it took to, 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 uh, to put it on and our kids ministry people were awesome. So I know they're not in the room, but can we just give them a round of applause for just a, a it really was just a killer week and it was a, it was a blast. And um, and in the middle of it, uh, smoke rolled in. And so it was like, okay, let's adjust. And then the next day it was like thunderstorm. And uh, it probably looked like Daniel, like, wait, is the sky on fire? It was like, you know, essential organs, just, uh, just different weather-wise. So um, it was a great, it was just a, a fantastic week. And um, so we're in we're in Daniel. We're in chapter eight. Last week was chapter seven. It's the doozy. It's the big one that, that kind of like sets up the rest of the book of Daniel. And now chapter eight is going to be kind of like um, uh, a, a, a refocus on parts of seven. And, um, and uh, if you remember, we talked about this uh, last week. We said that there's really four ways or four lenses by which you kind of put on your glasses and then you see apocalyptic literature when you read Daniel, certainly Revelation. And, and here they are just as by way of refresher, there's this, uh, what's referred to as the idealist idea or perspective where, where it's not like when you read Daniel, like even when we read this morning, they'll say this is really just more generic and symbolic and it's hard to, don't, don't read too literal into Numbers and what things represent. This, rep- this really is just sort of um, uh, an idea of how things work and how God interacts with the world. Then there's the, uh, the preterist idea. And this, um, this one is that, that everything that, is, that we think of end times actually already happened. And that Daniel, what we're going to read, it's all happened. And, and a lot of it has. Um, but then Revelation, they would say, oh, that, that all happened as well. And, and, and they interpret and put the lens on of this all happened in the first century. And so it's all past, even for us. And then there's the, the historist idea or view of perspective where, where this is really a representation of just kind of like history repeating itself. And so, so don't, don't try too hard to pin any one vision or thing or character and, and on one person, but this represents just a cycle of the kinds of people and the kinds of processes that the world goes through and, and evil shows up and then it goes away and then shows up and goes away. And so, so don't, so don't worry so much about like the when and where, but just that this is the cycle of, of how it goes throughout history. And then there's the, the futurist idea. And this is that, well, some of this happened in the past, yes, but, but this is referring to a lot of events that have yet to happen. And so you put on the lens of, no, no, this really is, when we talk about end times, that's in front of us still. Like we, it's still 
future for us. And a lot of what we read then in Revelation and, and not so much Daniel 8, but in like the rest of Daniel, we'll see, especially next week. Well, that's all future. That hasn't happened yet. And whichever lens you put on, however you interpret it, you can see how it would, it would change how you understand this book, this chapter, this section, whatever the, the, the vision is. So I'm not gonna tell you which lens to put on. Um, there, are, there are good Bible-believing, Christ-loving people in all four of them. Well, not the same person in all four. That would be hard to have all four. But there are people in each one of these are good, studied, well, well-knowledged commentators, theologians who land in different spots. And so it's not a matter of like saying, well, well listen, I'm right and they're wrong. Well, that, that may be true. Or either, either one's right and the rest are wrong or maybe all are wrong. And we're like just trying to figure this out. But the goal isn't to fight over, like we, we talked about this, to say, I'm right, and my job is to fix your view of revelation. Like, you got to get this right or else. My, my posture is, hey, this is what I hold. This is where I, I land, but I could be wrong. And I could, over time, like my view certainly can change. Like, I'm, I'm okay with someone giving new information or, or looking at language and saying, ooh, my understanding might be off a little bit. I'm not so tight gripped. So I, I hope that we all have that perspective of whatever our view is. And maybe it's none. Maybe you're sitting here and, and, and this is all new to you. And so that, even better for you, it's like, I don't, I don't have a view to hold on to. That's, that's fine as well. Um, so we're gonna jump into... Daniel chapter 8. We've seen some remarkable things in Daniel. We've seen um, uh, the sovereignty of God, that God is all-knowing and in charge of, of history. We've seen that come out in Daniel. We've seen that, that, uh, that God has a knowledge of, of the beginning and the end and what's to come and future things that are just simply supernatural, that there's just no way any human can make these kinds of predictions this accurately. We'll see it again here on display in Daniel chapter eight. Um, and then we've seen also, I hope at least you saw, at least in the beginning when we talked about an overview of Daniel of just, just how meticulously put together and how complex Daniel is, that it isn't just a guy saying, well, this happened and then this happened and this happened. Like it's very strategically written and, and, and I mean, to, the, to the detail, even, even we talked about this, it's written in two different languages intentionally and they overlap and it's just, it's incredible. So now we come to Daniel chapter eight and it's perhaps uh, one of the most accurate prophecies that we will see in the book of Daniel, maybe even in, in all of the Old Testament in terms of how it lines up with kind of the, the, the well-known popular, uh, popular knowledge of history, even of secular history, where just, it's just, this is just history. This is what happened. It is shocking how well Daniel 8 lines up with just the history of events. We come to an account of a guy that you've probably heard before. Maybe if you're a history buff, you've probably studied this guy. His name is Alexander. We call him the great because Alexander the okay is not very imposing. If you're, by the way, if you're gonna name yourself, give yourself like a title, go big, right? Right? So like in the office, they call me Brandon the oh wise one. I don't, I don't know where it came from. They just, one day they just did it. It's so it, it's on my nameplate now. I, I don't know how that got there too. 
I might have ordered it. So Alexander the Great steps on the scene, and we're going to see this is about him, though it doesn't mention him by name. Uh, every commentator, every historian, every theologian is like, oh, this is, yes, this is, this is it. It's talking about this guy. He's the most successful, the most, he was the most powerful, the most talented, uh, the most visionary leader the world had ever seen up to that point. This guy was the guy. And in about 330 BC, Alexander goes on, um, he goes on a conquest and he had yet to, he had yet to defeat and conquer the Persian emperor, the empire. Um, he was in the middle of that and, and, uh, and he was seeking to conquer um, Gaza and, and he toured the city of Jerusalem because he's looking at the promised land, Israel, and he's saying, okay, this is, I'm gonna have to take this. I'm gonna have to figure this out. If I want to conquer all of Persia, and then this is part of it. And this is quite a stronghold. Jerusalem is quite a trophy to win. So we see that, that uh, there's an account of this in um, a guy named Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian in the time of Rome in, in the first century. And he writes about this. He's not a believer. He's not a Christian. He's actually a, a fantastic resource. One of the, the only resources we have in the first century that, that is outside of scripture and out. He wasn't a believer. And he's just writing about events. This is what happened. I mean, he was just, I'm gonna write all this down. You can go online and get, order his works. You can read Josephus. Um, he's a, a wealth of information. And, and he writes about a time where Alexander went to Jerusalem and there the high priest came out and met him. And this high priest is, of course, uh, wearing robes. Like it, it, in the Old Testament, it, it was very specific what you had to wear. And, and this guy comes out in these ornate robes. And, and, and he was so, Alexander was so impressed with these guys because he had a vision. Alexander, as it goes, the story goes, he had a dream. And before he left Macedonia, where he's from, to go conquer the world, he had a dream in which he would show up to a city and these guys in robes would come out and would encourage him to then, to then continue his conquest. So when he shows up to Jerusalem and these guys come out in these robes, he pauses. Wait a minute. This, this is it. I had a dream about this very thing. So of course, he's intrigued and wants to know more. And, and this dream that he had was, was gonna be the thing that would encourage him in his conquest to Asia. Now, these men, they come out, they come out in, their, in their robes, the high priest, and here's what they do. Ready for this? This is crazy. You probably didn't know this. They bring out the book of Daniel to Alexander the Great. And they open it up and say, we think this is about you. And they go to guess what chapter? Chapter eight, which we're gonna read this morning. And they show Daniel this chapter and it is all the, it's all the fuel he needs to say, all right, if that's me, then I'm gonna conquer this entire place. He believed in oracles. He believed in prophecies. He would go visit oracles all over the place. He loved, you can imagine, right? He's, he's the great. He loved prophecies uh, that he could apply to himself. Like, oh, there's a great person who comes on the scene. Clearly they're talking about me, right? He believed he was a descendant of, of a God, even the God Zeus. And so he thought like, I am no mortal man. I am something special. So any prophecy that was relay, he could relate to himself naturally. 
I'm going to listen to. So he does this, and, and, and this, this he, they pull out Daniel, and this was written 200 years before Alexander will be born. Centuries. This wasn't something they wrote for him. People, Daniel was long dead when Alexander the Great shows up and prophesies, and this prophesies that he would conquer the Persian Empire. So we're going to read Daniel 8. Before we do, here's what I want you to know. What we're going to see in Daniel 8 and then even the rest of the book of Daniel, there will always be people who oppose God. There will always be, until Jesus comes back, until everything is settled, until evil's done away with, there will always be people who oppose God. Ready for this? Okay. Don't be one of them. <laughs> I promise you, you do not want to fit into the category of one who opposes God. Now, now we see, we're going to read about this, and it's, it's history. It's happened thousands of years from our time. But listen, I bet you and I, we could sit down and we could list out people today that we know oppose God. People just that we know in our lives and then people that we know like in society, in culture, uh, in politics, in, uh, in the movie industry, in science, where it's like they, there seems to be not just an indifference, but like an, an actual, when you talk about God, and you specifically when you bring up Jesus, their face changes. And it becomes, oh, nope. No, I don't want to, nope, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to talk about that. We know people today who oppose God, and we're going to read about people who oppose God. Even back then, there will always be people who oppose God. Until God is done with everything, there will be people who oppose him. Don't be one of them. Here it is, Daniel chapter 8. Are you ready to read the prophecy that Alexander the Great himself read and enjoyed? He probably took a, he probably took a copy, read it every night, right? Bedtime stories, kids. Let's read about me. <laughs> Here's what it says. Daniel chapter eight. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already happened to me. Do you remember the one that already happened to him? That was last week, Daniel chapter seven. It was the first year of Belshazzar's reign. So if we go back to our timeline, this is now two years after last week. So last week he had the vision about four beasts. Two years later now, he's gonna have the vision about this, this new, these new animals. Um, so it's two years later. Here's Daniel chapter eight. It's 551. It's still 12 years before Babylon would be defeated and conquered. So Babylon is still great and mighty and, and Daniel's gonna receive visions about its demise, about the next few empires to follow it. So he continues. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam, in the, in the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, this is, this is now 200 miles from where he currently is. So, so this is a place he's been to, he recognizes, but it's not like in his vision, he's somewhere else. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the, the west and the, nor and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue from its power. 
It did as it's pleased and it became great. So we see there's a ram that shows up now with how many horns? Two. One was longer than the other and this ram charged anywhere it wanted to go and it went north and east and south and no one could stop it. Okay, we still don't know what this means, but here we go. We continue. As I was thinking about this, I'm, he's watching this, and, and the language in Hebrew actually is like, as I was intently investigating and looking at this, like my focus is entirely on this thing. As I'm, as I'm thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It is flying. It came toward the two-horned ram and I, uh, I had seen standing beside the canal and it charged it with great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled it and, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great. But at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven, north, south, east, west. So Daniel is pondering this ram with two horns. And all of a sudden this goat shows up and it's flying across the land. I mean, this is like, this is like an Olympic track and field kind of goat, right? And it's, it's going as fast. He can't even fathom how fast it's going. And then it just dest- it attacks and destroys this ram, crushes its horns, and no one, nothing could save the ram. He just watched in, in disbelief as this ram that was so powerful now is, is helpless, is just, just a plaything for this goat to destroy. Now you can imagine seeing this and saying, I have no idea what this means. We read it now, and you're sitting here going, I have no idea what this means. (laughs) So we're going to talk about this. This, um, this, this, This goat, this extremely powerful goat with a large horn that's broken off into four horns. This vision is different than Daniel 7, but, but there's some striking similarities, right? If you remember some of the beasts from Daniel 7, there are some things here that you would say, okay, that's actually, that's actually kind of similar. If you remember, the ram had two horns, one longer than the other. And if you remember the bear from, from chapter seven, it had one side larger than the other, emphasizing that there were, it was this two-focused thing, but one was stronger, better, larger than the other. We see that here with, with this ram. And then we see this goat that shows up extremely powerful, but then suddenly the goat's horn is broken off and it's replaced with Four horns. And if you remember from chapter 7, there's a leopard. And this leopard had four heads, if you remember this. Specifically, that, that this is somehow, there's, there's going to be four different leaders in charge of this thing somehow. So here's what we have. We have this chart we talked about last week. If you remember, um, go, uh, if you look at the head of gold, it was Babylon lions and eagles wings we don't see that here but we do see this bear with one side higher than the other is a ram this ram represents this this same place the same empire and this we saw clearly is 
Medo-Persia, the, the Medes and the Persians joining together to create one empire to take over Babylon. And we see this ram, this, this two-horned ram, one with a larger horn, and, 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 and Persia became larger and stronger and greater than, than, than Media, than the Medes, than, than the Medo part. Um, and, and, well, that makes, that actually makes, it fits perfectly. And then we see it's followed by another empire, another animal with one large horn. And this one large horn is broken into four horns. And, and we said even last week, well, this leopard is Greece and Greece had four heads. And, and once, once Alexander the Great is killed and dies, he steps off the scene. Uh, it's, he's replaced by his four generals. Man, that sounds awfully like this large horn then broken off in the height of his power. He's, he dies at age 33. He's young and, and he's replaced with his four generals now take over his kingdom. Now, Daniel doesn't know any of this, but we look back and say, Daniel, you nailed it. Somehow you, like, this, this, ha- this is prophetic. And this, this kind of thing, chapter seven, chapter eight, is why a lot of critical scholars, maybe even call them liberal scholars, who, uh, who, who, would, who would maybe not hold to prophecy and prophetic announcements, they would say, well, clearly Daniel was written after these empires had risen because he nailed it. There's no way he could have written this in his time. Someone else wrote it later and just put his name on it in, in around between a, a 175 and 150 BC, after, after all this had happened because it's just far too accurate. It's too accurate for comfort. Now, I don't know where you stand. I, I, I tend to believe Daniel when he says, I, Daniel, did these things. And, and there's a lot of reasons why we, why we can believe this, especially in the fact that we believe God does know the future and can tell anyone he wants. And we see other prophecies in scripture. Like, like if you hold this to be God's word, then, then really what you're saying is, no, God really did predict this ahead of time that accurately. So we see we see Alexander come on the scene and, and his father, you know, uh, maybe you don't know much about, fa- his, about dad, about Alex's dad. Um, his name was Philip, Philip II. Philip was, uh, was the one who initially organized a coalition of Macedonian troops and, and, uh, and to take over, he began to conquer Greece. And the first place he took over was this small little town. And, and guess what? This is, this, is, this, is, this is another thing you do when you're in charge. When you defeat a town, a city, a village, you get to rename it. And guess what you name it? Yourself. <laughs> there's a town, there's a city, even it still exists today. Uh, Alexandria, there's actually a few Alexandrias in the world. Guess who named those? The Great. <laughs> you know what? This city is incredible. Just like me. <laughs> so, Philip II decided to rename this town and it became known as, you ready for this? Philippi. It's the same city to which the book of Philippians was written. The book of Philippians is called Philippians because Alex's dad decided to conquer this town and rename it. You've read the book of Philippians and and every time you say Philippians, you're remembering Philip. You're saying his name, right? Uh, one day when I conquer Bend, I'm going to change its name. <laughs> so get ready, okay? So here's what happened. This, uh, 
uh, Philip is eventually assassinated when, when Alex is still young. So Alexander the Great is 19 when his dad is killed and he now takes over. And he now starts this conquest and it becomes the greatest conquest the world had ever seen and at the fastest conquest. And then at age 33, he dies. Now, Alexander the Great had the greatest resources in the world. He would be tutored by the greatest philosophers. Um, his tutor, do you know who his tutor was? You know the name. His name is Aristotle. Aristotle. You, you probably know if you've studied philosophy, you've read Aristotle and Plato. This is the sin. This is that group of people. And Alexander is tutored and trained by them. He learned to love Greece and Greek culture and the Greek language. So everywhere he went, he spread Greek culture and Greek language. The, the, the fact that he loved Greek so much is why the New Testament is written in Greek. He spreads this language all over the place, which is why it became the dominant language, not Hebrew, not anything else. And it, it was Greek because he conquered everything and said, all right, Greek's the language. Learn it, speak it. This is that we're gonna spread Greek culture everywhere. You didn't realize how much influence and how much, um, how much involvement that, that Alex and even his dad had on the scriptures, even though it was sort of like secondarily, like, we read this and we translate the Bible from Greek because this guy, Alexander the Great, he conquered this world. So he dies and guess what happens? He has no heirs, he has no kids. So he has to divide his kingdom up somehow. He's got four incredible generals. All right, guys, goes to you. So these, this one horn, this one great leader that the world had never seen before gets replaced by four more new horns that, that aren't as great as he was. And they divide up his territory, his kingdom into four. Now, Daniel continues. That's just the beginning. It says this now, verse nine. Out of one of them, out of one of the four horns, so we have this one large horn replaced by four horns. And then now it says, out of one of those four horns, and we know which one that is, out of one of them came another horn which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and, and toward the beautiful land, the beautiful land being the promised land, Israel. It grew up until it reached the host of heaven and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it, this horn. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking and, and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that, that causes desolation, that language right there should stand out to you. Um, it shows up elsewhere in the New Testament. Jesus quotes that very language later on when he's alive to reference back to Daniel. This, this rebellion that causes desolation, how long? And then he continues, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. How long will this happen? He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Now, again, you're Daniel. You have no clue 
what any of this means. We look back at history and say, we can actually, we can actually fit this together. We can puzzle piece this together. And, and wouldn't, wouldn't you believe it? There's so much to be debated in Daniel. There's so many commentators who disagree on, on what and where and who goes where and when and which person is which. But nearly every, nearly every commentator agrees that this new horn is one particular person that's already lived. His name is Antiochus IV, also called the Epiphanes commonly referred to known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphany means God manifest. This guy, if you thought Alexander had a complex, this guy was like, listen, I am God. Call me God manifest. What a great name. I am Antiochus IV, the Epiphany. Okay. And this guy shows up on the scene. He comes out of the Seleucid kingdom, which is one of the horns. And he lived in the second century BC, but he was not a mighty conqueror. This guy was a master politician. He was incredible at deception and intrigue and making treaties. In the year 175 BC, he secured the high priesthood of the Jews and persuaded them to show loyalty to Greek culture and to idolatry. And many Jews were persecuted and put to death by this guy. Antiochus would then be, uh, he would be guilty of blasphemy. He ascended himself up to be, he he thought, I'm the incarnation of Zeus. I'm not a son of Zeus. Alex, that's fine. I am Zeus here to rule over you. Not only that, he went into, if you know anything about the temple, he went into this place called the Holy of Holies, into the temple itself. This was the place you don't go. This is where God's presence would be. They built this specifically. We, we see this in the New Testament. Jesus interacts with the Holy of Holies. If you remember when he dies, the, turtin, the, the curtain is torn to the Holy of Holies, symbolizing we now have entrance into this place to God's presence. Before then, you couldn't do this. So this guy, he goes in there. And he decides, I'm going, to, I'm going to cut off animal sacrifices. I'm going to end this. Everything that was prophesied, he does. So he stops the sacrifices. And we're told it's for 2,300 mornings and evenings. And there's two ways to interpret this. You get to decide or you just say, I don't know. It could represent 2,300 days, or it could represent, like a lot of commentators believe, 1,150 days. It was 1,150 morning sacrifices and 1,150 evening sacrifices. So two sacrifices is really one full 24-hour period. So this, this they would say, this lines up with the timeline that, that is actually 1,150 days. And he put an idol in the Holy of Holies. You don't do this. And then he did this. This is the worst thing that he did. He had taken pigs into the sanctuary, these unclean animals, sacrificed them and put, he anointed it with pig's blood because he knew, he knew that this was the worst, this is the low of the low for the Jews. So I'm gonna take pig blood. This the most unclean thing that in your culture, I'm gonna put it all over your temple, everywhere. Just to show how powerful I am. Zeus am. This guy was a bad dude. This guy loved persecuting God's people. But then we're told 
It will be restored. The temple will be restored. There's a story that maybe you know of. You certainly heard about the the outcome of what happens next. In 164 BC, Judas Maccabeus, he recaptured Jerusalem. And he restores sacrifices to the temple. He cleanses the temple. And, and while they're cleansing it, they found one, all of this, they found one little vial of oil that hadn't been defiled. This vial of oil was enough to last for one day. So they light it as a remnant to say, all right, we're, re, we're re, reconstituting, we're, re, uh, we're rededicating this back to the Lord. We're gonna clean it up and we're gonna use this as the beginning. One day's worth of oil, they light it and it lasts for eight days. Miraculously, the story goes, it burned for eight days. And this is why every year in December, Jews celebrate what is called Hanukkah. It's the eight days, the eight candles representing the eight days of this, this miraculous burning and the, re, the, the recapturing and then rededicating of the temple back to the Lord after this guy Antiochus defiled it. Now, Daniel doesn't know any of this. He's just seeing visions. He has no clue what's gonna happen. He has no clue about the future. So it goes on. It says this, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. Not the son of man like before. This is a different, this is just a, another one. Looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. Now, if you recognize that name, you realize this is one of just a few angels ever actually named in Scripture. This is Gabriel, the archangel Mike, uh, Gabriel. Like him and Michael are like the big dudes. This is Gabriel. This isn't just some angel. This is the guy. Daniel gets to talk with Gabriel. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified. I fell prostrate. I fell on the ground. And he said, son of man, he said to me, understand what, that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep and my face, with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. So, so he passes out. And he's like out, cold. And he says, he, he brings me back up, raises me to my feet. And he says this, he said, I'm gonna tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, perfect, he tells us. He doesn't know what that means, Daniel doesn't, but all right. The shaggy goat, no, oh, now we're told it, it, it was shaggy. All right, that's cool. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. This is Alex. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation but will not have the same power. Okay, man, we're getting, again, this is incredibly accurate prophecy. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have, come, have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people, God's people, the Jews. He will cause deceit to prosper. He will consider himself superior. And when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince 
of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. As the story goes, he would eventually die, but he was killed of, of a disease. No, no man killed him. Wow. I had two lines up. The vision of evenings and mornings that have been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. For Daniel, this would take place hundreds of years later. For us, we look back, and this was thousands of years ago, and we see, wow, this guy, Gabriel, you nailed it. You you predicted so accurately what was going to happen. Now, is this talking about the Antichrist? We talked about this last week. This, this, if you're a futurist view, you have this idea of an, of an Antichrist coming in the future. And, and the answer is, sort of. And I'm going to tell you something that maybe you don't realize or haven't thought about or, or didn't know was actually true. But, but do you know that there are actually, in Scripture, there, there are a lot of Antichrists talked about? Not, not one. There's one in particular that will be far worse than the rest down in the future, but there are actually a lot of Antichrists talked about. Look at what John says in 1 John 2, 18. He says, Dear, dear children, this is the last hour. And you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. There's a sense in which th this prophecy is describing Antiochus, certainly, but also future Antichrists, and eventually the future Antichrist, like capital A Antichrist that we read about in Revelation. Now, again, Daniel doesn't know any of this. So for him, here's how it ends. Ready? The vision ends of Daniel 8 ends a lot like Daniel 7. With Daniel at a loss, he says, I, Daniel, was worn out. <laughs> this is too much. I, he says this, I lay exhausted for several days. Like, I didn't get out of bed. Now, I, I've never had a dream like that. Maybe you have where you're like, I am not going to work today because of just how terrible that was. I, I've never had that. I've had those, like you've probably had those dreams where you wake up and like if you're married, you're sleeping next to someone and if they're in the dream and they did something terrible, like you wake up and you like slap them. Like, how could you do that to me? What? You left me on the side of the road. You stranded me. How could you? I won't do it again. I'm so sorry. This was not that kind of dream. This was a dream where he woke up and realized, oh, this is God telling me what's happening. It's, it's too much. It's overwhelming. He lay there. Then he says, then I got up, went about the king's business, just got back to my work. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. That's how Daniel 8 ends. Good news. <laughs> In the end, the good guys win. Well, but they don't. That's, that's the end of Daniel, his vision. He doesn't know he's getting more visions. He doesn't know about chapters 9 through 12 that he's going to write. That's it. For him, he's... This is too much. In the end, it feels evil. Evil wins? Evil takes over? There will always be people who oppose God. Don't be one of them. Daniel 8 shows us how bad it can be for God's people and how, how bad, ready? How bad it still will get in the future. That we aren't somehow immune to bad things simply because we follow the Lord. Instead, though, it speaks to not, not that God is losing the fight, but rather it speaks to man's ability to oppose God. 
that mankind has this, has this uncanny desire and, and, and fortitude to oppose everything about God in an attempt to place themselves as their own authority. We see this throughout history, and guess what? It never ends well for them. <laughs> never. In fact, we could have said to Alexander the Great as he's reading chapter 8, hey, um, just read the rest. See what happens to you. We could say this too. There will always be people who oppose God. Don't be one of them. But, but for us, there will always be people who oppose God. Ready? Don't let them ruin your faith. Don't look at the world. It's so easy, especially now where there's social media and the news and like, like you don't even want to get the world events and it's like coming to your phone and you get notifications and you go to work and people tell you about it and it's all bad news. And it's so easy. It's so easy to get discouraged and dismayed and I don't know how. Wow, God, really? Can it get any worse? Oh, it, it can and it will. And even when it does, when there are strong people who oppose God, ready for this? It doesn't have to ruin your faith. It's not like God is saying, I didn't know about this. He knows. And if you remember in chapter seven, and we'll see in the rest of Daniel, in the end, God's, hey, listen, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. I'm just telling you ahead of time what's gonna happen. And we see that this, even this, Daniel 8, it paves the way for one to come who will be an incredible victor. One who will, who will conquer sin and death and evil. One that's referred to as the Messiah. One that, that as God, is, God is playing the long game and just showing you here's what's gonna have to happen to be set up, but then there's one that's, that's coming. We know him now as Jesus. The one that, that shows up on the scene and says, all right, yeah, I, all these other kings, they all want this glory and kingdoms. No, 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 listen, I already have a kingdom and here's how I get my kingdom. Here's how I get my people. I sacrifice myself and my love for them. And that's us. It's you and it's me. There will always be people who oppose God. Don't be one of them and don't let them ruin your faith. Instead, we say, when, e when it looks like evil is increasing, we say, Jesus, I lean into you more. God, I focus on you even more. Would you do this? Would you stand with me as we pray? So Lord, we're, we're reminded of your goodness. And in, in chapters like this, we have to continue to remind ourselves that this is, this is nowhere near the end of the story. But for Daniel, it felt overwhelming. And there may be some of us in our lives where right now it feels overwhelming because we don't see the future. But we trust in your sovereignty and in your control of what happens next. We rest in that. Not this desire to have it all laid out, to figure it out, but rather to say, God, you're going to do what you're going to do. And if I have to choose where I'm at, oh, I'm, I'm on your side, always. Be with us now, Lord, as we worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.